This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, your co-host and executive producer and also serve as the managing director of Health Innovation Media, curating digital content for the transformational imperative. Joining me in our cutting-edge virtual studio is co-founder and principal co-host, the one and only Fred Goldstein. Fred also wears the hat of president at Accountable Health, LLC. Pop Health Week is your go-to platform for peer-to-peer conversation with industry leaders, innovators, and ecosystem stakeholders, including payers, providers, patients, vendors, and the regulatory community. We come together to swap the best ideas and strategies in population health management. Connect with us via www.popupstudio.productions or drop me a direct message on Twitter via at GregMastersMPH. And that's Greg with two Gs. You can reach Fred direct via Twitter at FSGoldstein or www.accountablehealthllc.com. Today, we're in the company of biostatistician and AI researcher Daniel W. Byrne, the Director of Artificial Intelligence Research at the Advanced Vanderbilt Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and author of Artificial Intelligence for Improved Patient Outcomes Principles for Moving Forward with Rigorous Science, noted as a, quote, one-stop guide on how to design and lead pragmatic, real-world AI studies that yield rigorous scientific evidence, all in a manner that is safe and ethical, end quote. We discuss the state of AI uptake in healthcare and preview key industry issues leadership must address to discern the hype versus real-world integration of AI in clinical workflows that improve healthcare quality outcomes, population health indices, and overall public health. And now, without further ado, let's hand the mic over to the one and only Fred. Thanks so much, Greg and Dan. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. It's really great to get you on. Another fascinating topic we'll discuss today, AI. It's really taken off. Obviously, we've done a couple of shows on it, but I thought after I heard you do a presentation for the University of Mississippi Medical Center, you had a really unique viewpoint and some excellent expertise, obviously, in this area. So could you provide us with a little bit on your background and what you're doing now? Sure. So I'm Dan Byrne. I'm currently a faculty member at the Department of Biostatistics at Vanderbilt. And my title is Director of Artificial Intelligence Research at Avail, the Advanced Vanderbilt Artificial Intelligence Lab. I've been pushing the limits of AI in medicine for about 40 years. I started back in New York City in 1983. We developed some AI algorithms to test if we could improve the safety of operating on elderly patients. I had my undergraduate degree in biology and, and computer science from SUNY Albany. And then I, I earned a graduate degree in biostatistics from New York Medical College. So I've been developing AI tools and testing if we can improve them in patient outcomes, improve patient outcomes, but specifically I think what you heard me talk about was, can we do pragmatic, randomized controlled trials to really see if we can improve patient outcomes with AI compared to usual care? And we've been able to do this with large, randomized studies in a hospital and really answer the question that other people struggle to answer. And that's, 
does AI really improve patient outcomes? And if you don't do the randomized control trial, just like with a drug going to the FDA, you don't really know if you've improved patient outcomes. You don't know if it's safe. So that's the area that we've been focusing on. So obviously, a lot of people are launching these AI products, but very few of them that I've ever heard of doing randomized controlled trials for these things. Yet they're out there. People are using them probably... A lot of concern in the clinical area, but obviously if you do what you're talking about, you reduce some of that concern based on the study design. Absolutely. And I think the randomized control trial and the pragmatic version of it, patient-level randomization, is the only way that we know that AI is safe. And it's the only way we know that AI is improving patient outcomes. If we do weaker observational studies or before, after, or even step wedge designs, uh, there's so many differences in the patients uh, that, that we can't really be sure that the change in the patient is due to the AI tool. So can you give us some examples of areas you've done this in? Sure. So we've built predictive models of hospital readmissions. Every hospital is interested in that. And we've proven that we're able to predict um, uh, hospital readmissions, and then if you can predict it, you can have risk stratification and can focus the prevention on the patients who need it most. And we've been able to do that in a randomized controlled trial. The other, and really I should say that all areas of medicine can probably benefit from an AI tool that predicts and prevents. So we move from reactive to proactive. The other areas we've focused on is predicting blood clots in the hospital, predicting postpartum hemorrhage, predicting reintubation, predicting lupus. But you can imagine all areas of medicine, chronic disease and complications in the hospital are things that humans have a hard time predicting accurately, even though Daniel Kahneman has proven that they're very confident in their prediction. They're not very accurate in their prediction. So these AI tools really do add value. The trick there is how do you build a tool that can be used in real time? So, so we build these AI tools that predict these things from large data sets. And then we encode it into the electronic health record so it runs in real time. But then we only display that for a random half of the patients. And then we run that for about a year and we see, did we actually use this in a way that's better than usual care? And some people are concerned about the ethics of randomizing, but the ethicists have taught me that just moving these tools into production without randomization can be very unethical. Just like you wouldn't want a drug used if it hadn't been tested for safety with randomization. So let me give, let's go back to that 30 day readmit one. Cause that's fascinating. I've heard a lot of people talk about the fact that we're not getting good data around 30 day readmits from some of these models. And so when you do that within the facility and you said you sort of feed that up to certain providers in a random manner, and then are you looking at the prediction of the AI and providing the information to that provider versus not providing it to another, or just the fact that it's predicting this more likelihood versus what the other doctor might've done or said. There are many people who think we don't need a predictive model for something like this. I, I'm experienced in this. I can tell you which patients will be readmitted. I've been doing this a long time. 
I, I know I can look at patients, I can look at their chart, I can tell you who's going to be readmitted. But there was a study done where they tested various groups and they asked them to predict the probability of readmissions. And none of them were much better than flipping a coin. Now, the predictive model is not perfect, but the AUC is a whole lot better than humans are. So the basic idea is that um, you can use existing data when patients are admitted to the hospital and then updated every day to compute probability of readmission for everybody in the hospital. And then the patients at highest risk can have a team to provide them with the resources that are needed. And these resources are limited. They're not available um, for every patient. So we do need risk stratification, but we need one that, that's accurate. They're not perfect. The AUC is not 1.0, but it doesn't mm -hmm. need to be perfect. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, your model's not perfect, come back when it's perfect. But perfection is the enemy of progress. And could you please, for those who maybe didn't remember their statistics classes from back in the day, explain what AUC is? Oh, sure. Um, so all AI and predictive modeling tools um, provide a probability of some outcome, probability that the patient will develop a blood clot, probability of the patient will be readmitted between zero and 100%. If the model is completely worthless, it will have an area under the curve of 0.5. If the model is perfect, it will have an area under the curve of 1.0. Most clinical AI tools have an area under the curve of between uh, 0.85 and 0.90. If people tell you their AUC is above 0.95, you should look at it carefully because it's probably reverse causation or some something that's really not true. Now, we tested human beings to see if they could predict postpartum hemorrhage. And these are experienced clinicians who do this every day. And the model has an AUC of about 0.9, but the clinicians, experienced clinicians of all types, had an AUC that was just barely better than 0.5. So, and we really shouldn't expect um, human beings to do something that's that's not humanly possible. You can't put 25 factors into your brain and compute a probability. It's, it's just not humanly possible. But the symbiosis lets the computer do what it's good at, predict and develop that probability of the postpartum hemorrhage. And then the humans can focus on the high-risk patients and do what they're good at and make sure they get the right care. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk again about this 30-day readmit. So you've identified individuals at more likelihood of being readmitted within 30 days based on the AI model, and then you apply some additional resources to them. Is that a standardized resource approach, or have you been able to begin to identify what certain interventions might be better from a care management approach or a, a follow-up approach for home health, et cetera, to implement those specifically for a patient? Yeah, so that's the key question, right? So um, it, it's easy with data to build a model and test whether or not it predicts. So we don't we don't need to test whether the model predicts uh, prospectively. Um, but when we look at the high risk patients who are likely to be readmitted within thirty days, what we found is they all need something, but 
There's not one thing they all need. And as a matter of fact, a, a group um, published a paper about what it is that the patients actually need to be readmitted, to be not be readmitted. And the reviewers said, this is boring um, because there was no new discovery about what was needed. What patients needed was just the routine things that should be done. But each patient needed something different. Some needed a psych consult, some needed a social worker, some needed transportation, some needed their meds. Um, but all the high-risk patients needed something. And that's where the symbiosis, the model predicts who's likely to be readmitted, but it's not good at all about what's needed. And that's where the human comes in. So the human can look at those high-risk patients and match it to the services that, that we have, but they're limited. Just tuning in, we're in the company of Daniel W. Byrne, the Director of Artificial Intelligence Research at the Advanced Vanderbilt Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and author of Artificial Intelligence for Improved Patient Outcomes, Principles for Moving Forward with Rigorous Science. Stay tuned for the rest of the story. So in, in essence, do you see a point where that might be better? where that becomes important or do you see it now that if we just look at the patients as a group and apply the general stuff it will sort of sort out which interventions we need to do or ultimately will ai say hey i believe for this patient a mental health consult would be better whereas for this patient transportation might be better can we get to that level no i i don't really think that's um that's the future i i i think uh, AI tools are very good at the math part of it, the probability of this outcome. But what's needed for those patients, and, and other AI vendors have tried to do both, but I think we have to make it as clinical decision support, not clinical decision replacement. When you start to ask the AI tool to not only compute the probability of something, but then replace the clinician, that's where you usually get in trouble and it falls apart. And clinicians ha have a lot of experience. They're very smart and they can do things that an AI tool um, just cannot do. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. So at Vanderbilt, do you have, could you give us a sense of how many of these models you've deployed? Uh, we've probably deployed about 10 of them. And uh, mm -hmm. we have a bunch running now in uh, pragmatic randomized control trials. And, um, the beauty of these pragmatic randomized control trials is that uh, we we build the model, we automate it into the electronic health record, we get IRB approval to display it for a random half, and we develop an intervention for the the usual for the intervention arm in the high risk group. An important part of this is all patients are randomized to usual care or usual care plus the AI tool. So we don't take anything away from anyone. We just add on top of one arm, the AI tool and some extra um, effort to make sure that those patients get what they should be getting. Got it. And one of the big issues about AI obviously has been it's much easier to get these things implemented when they're around operational issues and admissions and pulling data or 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 uh, pulling, extracting and integrating data from a fax. 
but obviously you're doing this in a cl clinical realm, which is where we've seen the most pushback. What's been the response from the physicians at Vanderbilt to this? Well, it's varied. Um, I, I think in this last year, almost everybody has seen that AI is extremely powerful. And I think even the doubters have come around to see that AI is the future. It's very powerful. And almost everybody um, in the AI field and in society in general sees that medicine is where we're going to see the real benefit to AI. But yet, as far as I can tell, there's very little evidence that AI has been used to improve patient outcomes. And I think the, the main reason is, um, well, I, I like to say that the secret sauce is the pragmatic randomized control trial. Until we test it in that way, we don't have a way to see if we're moving the needle. Um, and I think there's a limit to you know, some of the current approach of hyping these things up and putting a spin on it. Um, but what I've seen is that it's easy to bamboozle 99.9% .9 of the population that AI is improving patient outcomes. Um, but that's short-term success. And the long-term success is to do the rigorous science and, and really test if we're improving outcomes. And, and speaking of that rigorous science, obviously you're embedded within Vanderbilt. You're developing these models, bringing you have that expertise in-house, developing them, running through Vanderbilt, testing them out, and then ultimately if they work, deploying them. What would you do? You do any of these with outside organizations that want to try to do this and do some random control trials inside your wall four walls? Well, that's a good question. So um, I I do realize that not all hospitals have the resources of an academic medical center to build their own tools and do pragmatic randomized trials. Um, and I also realize there's a lot of startups that that have these tools that want to sell them to hospitals um so we can't build everything um, um and we do have to buy some things um my advice to hospital leaders when they're thinking about buying an ai tool for for something like this is not to say no or yes we're gonna buy your tool but to say no or yes for random half of our patients for the first year and we'll see if your claims hold up and if your claims hold up we'll buy your product and if not um we won't um so i, I do think that um most hospitals will come around to see that um testing if these claims really do hold up is um is the right way forward mm-hmm and also, I know you've published now your second book on this topic entitled Artificial Intelligence for Improved Patient Outcomes, Principles for Moving Forward with Rigorous Science. Tell us about the book, why you decided to publish this, and uh, what people can benefit from it. Sure. So I've been doing this for about 40 years, and um, this is my area of expertise, artificial intelligence and medicine and, and the rigorous science of it. And I've studied what other people were doing, and um, I uh, was up on the literature, and um, I, I saw that um, there needed to be a blueprint for the right way to do AI in medicine. And a lot of people who are really smart in AI and engineering and computer science really stumble when it comes to healthcare. And healthcare 
has its own complications. So having spent 40 years working on the inside, I learned a lot of things that I thought would be valuable for other people. So my book is a blueprint for people who want to use AI in, in healthcare. It's also a, a nice guide for people in hospital administration, hospital leaders who didn't learn about AI and need to learn these skills because it's an important part of their job now. So often they're the ones getting bamboozled with these claims by salespeople about overall accuracy, they don't understand regression to the mean or reverse causation, and they don't have time to go back and get a PhD in artificial intelligence, but my book is a resource for them to get up to speed on how to evaluate AI and the claims about it. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I think it's fantastic. And you can get that up on Amazon. Is that right? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Excellent. So... The area, you know, obviously population health, a little bit broader than some of these point solutions you've been uh, developing. Do you see some specific areas where you feel there's some possibilities to bring this into the population health realm? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's powerful. And and again, populate, population health is, um, is too reactive. And um, we can use these tools to be much more proactive where things can be um, addressed at an earlier stage when, when we have solutions. Um, so I believe all areas of pop population health can benefit from AI tools, um, predicting chronic disease and um, you, you name it. I, it'd be hard to imagine an area of population that health that wouldn't benefit from this. But, but again, um, you know, I think the principles of randomization and rigorous science to know have we moved the needle are are still the key there. Yeah, it's fascinating when you think about the various steps in a population health management program. What you've talked about is is using AI essentially to to segment that population, identify those higher risk people, and if you can do that, and then as you said, there may be general interventions you apply to them, but at the end of the day a good population health program needs to measure outcomes. Are these things real? And obviously the only way to really determine that to the highest standard is a random controlled trial. Um, and it'll be interesting to see as vendors begin to launch more of these, if, if they begin to recognize that need or they continue to, as you talk about, just push this stuff out that may or may not be quite true. Outcomes questionable, data gathered questionable, how they did it, et cetera. So it's really a, a fascinating area. Are there, Certain areas in particular around clinical care where you have some concerns of using AI at this point or that have been overhyped to an extent? Well, I think many of the AI tools that um, are currently being um, promoted out there um, still need rigorous evaluations for safety and efficacy. And you know, one thing I've learned is that it's not difficult to do it the right way. So um, we can build a really good AI predictive modeling tool. Uh, we, we can export a data set in a day. Uh, it doesn't take long to export a data set. We can build a model in a day. We can code the model into the AHR in a day. And then we can do a pragmatic randomized control trial across the whole hospital in a year. So sometimes people will say the randomization slows things down, but the randomization always speeds things up. And people are often 
worried about bias and and fairness of AI. Um, but when you push them about, well, what's your solution there? Um, uh, they they often stumble and they don't seem to ha have a solution there. But again, mm -hmm. if you want to know, does your AI tool um, work overall, but also in important subgroups, is it biased? Is it fair to subgroups of patients? The randomized controlled trial lets you see that. And no other method allows you to see if the AI tool is biased or unfair to certain subgroups. And in a lot of and, ways, and the AI tool could reduce bias. So there's bias in many things in our society. And the AI tool um, has been shown in some uses where it's just pure math and it's an easier way to uh, be fair to all patients. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's fascinating. You, you jump right to the area I wanted to talk about, which was this issue of bias. We've seen it come out in some of the AI tools that have been used by others. And obviously, you have a subset. in the At the end of the day, you have a subset of a population that's Vanderbilt that comes into your facility that is representative of Vanderbilt and what comes into that facility. Do you think there may be issues with exportability? to other places that may have slightly different populations? Or do you see that it's broad enough potentially to solve for those bias issues that we've seen in the past? So that's such an important question. And it it partly depends on how good your model is and what the predictors in your model are. Um, but for the most part, I think that all of these models should be tested and recalibrated and refit at different medical centers or, or different hospitals. Um, and it's not difficult to do. So you can just take take the model and refit it to your population and, and see, you know, what's the AUC? What's the calibration curve? Does it work in subgroups? Um, is the model worth using at our hospital here. And so that's a geographical validation of the model. And for our approach has been to publish everything in the appendix of the paper that um, somebody would need to do a geographical validation of our model. Some people will say their model is proprietary, it's a black box and you don't know what's in it and it's a secret. We don't take that approach. We, we, we are very transparent about what's in our model and um, we put that right in the paper, so anybody that wants to uh, do a geographical validation, they can they can just try it out in their hospital. That's fantastic, and it'll be interesting to see, as you said, I think. But that does create the need for sort of a second RCT at that facility to ensure that what you built at this one works there, et cetera. Although maybe in some cases it is obviously broad enough that it might as well. Um, I really want to thank you for your time, Dan. It's been incredible. Obviously, you've got this book on Amazon. People should take a look at it. I think this idea of random controlled trials is really the key to us getting, one, the acceptance from the provider, and two, recognizing that this thing actually does work versus some of what we're seeing out there. So thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And back to you, Greg. And there you have it, folks. That's a wrap for today's broadcast. We want to extend our warmest thanks to our fantastic worldwide listeners for tuning in and our heartfelt appreciation to Daniel W. Byrne, the Director of Artificial Intelligence Research at the Advanced Vanderbilt Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. You can keep up with Daniel's work via his Twitter profile at Daniel W. Byrne. 
And that's at D-A-N-I-E-L-W-B-Y-R-N-E or on LinkedIn. We're live on Healthcare Now Radio weekdays at 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And for our friends on the West Coast, that's 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. From all of us at Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, and yours truly, Greg Masters, we urge you to stay safe and stay tuned. Until next time, fare thee well.